Well, living here in the United States, right? Uh, being today what it is, it's almost impossible not to have seen or heard or talked about the 10th anniversary of 9-11, the day the World Trade Center fell, and with it, many of our false hopes and our security as a nation and false hopes in our economy as a foundation. Where were you? Every generation has a where were you story. Some of you maybe even remember World War II when that came about, or the first moon landing. Where were you? For, I know for my parents it's JFK when he was shot. Where were you? That was the big thing for them. For me, besides 9-11, the Challenger explosion in 84, that was a big one. We were watching that live in class as fourth graders and that was pretty shocking. Where were you on 9-11? Where were you on February 5th, 2005, my 30th birthday, and the day the Seahawks were robbed by the officials of a Super Bowl victory? <laughs> now, these examples are merely prominent American historical examples, but each nation and each culture has its own set of where were you stories. The people of Norway would no doubt ask, where were you the day that crazy gunman came and open fire on all those kids at that camp just a few months ago. Or in Rwanda, actually, you were there, uh, Wayne, but uh, where were you when the genocide was running rampant? Or in China, where were you during Tiananmen Square? Every generation and culture has its events that mark history and make its story. And we have these in our personal life, don't we? Within a family, we might remember a certain wedding or a birth or a death a significant achievement or a significant failure. I've heard many people claim that this event or that event changed the history of the world forever. In fact, one of the, the common ones that you hear, especially on a day like today, is that 9-11 changed the world. Well, it most certainly changed people's lives and most horribly the ones that lost someone in that event. It changed the way we go about doing things like traveling, increased security, you now need a passport just to go to Canada, which is a bummer. 9-11 sparked different reactions, it didn't cause them, but it sparked certain reactions, so now we have wars going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. And there are two ways I think that we can look at an event such as 9-11. One popular way is to see it as a world-changing event, that it forever changed somehow the outcome of history. Now, while I agree that 9-11 and similar events certainly make history and alter history, I don't believe that they ultimately change the outcome of our world. Are you surprised that I would say that? Because the other way to look at this, I think, is that there is only one event in history that changed the outcome of the world. The death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Here's what I mean. The, the Christian worldview, the Christian worldview contains within it the belief that God is sovereign, in control of our ultimate fate, of our ultimate destiny. Furthermore, that God in His infinite wisdom and mercy and self-sacrificial love decided to give Himself as His only Son to die and then defeat death through the resurrection. All with the promise that one day creation, as we know it, broken, 
would be recreated. And all those who place their faith in Him will be assured of eternal life in this new creation. Where there's no more suffering or loneliness or tears. And it's for this reason that no matter what events happen in history, even events as earth-shattering as 9-11, the final say is in God's hands, and the final say is life through faith in Jesus. Amen? That's good news. So this is, in a very real sense, why I say that only one event actually changed the world, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Now, does that mean history is unimportant? Joe, does that mean history is unimportant? No. Joe and I are history nerds, like some of you. Um, may it never be. May it never be. I strongly believe that knowing our history not only gives us context without which we would be absolutely lost, but every event in history, world history, national history, church history, family history, private history, Everything is an opportunity to see how we fit into God's greater story and where we are in relation to God in His story. And it's for that reason that for the second year in a row, we're going to spend, I know it's not fall yet, but the fall season in the book of Genesis. We've titled this sermon series, In the Beginning, because the Hebrew word for the book of Genesis is Bereshit, which is beginning. It's the book of origins. It's the account of the beginning of life. The account of the beginning of humanity's relationship with God and God's rescue mission to redeem all things that He's made. Now last year, we covered the first 11 chapters in Genesis. And it said that the first 11 chapters in Genesis contains more history, more chronology, more time than chapter 12 in Genesis all the way up to today. That's a long time. And I'm going to recap it all in less than five minutes. Are you ready? Shake it out now. In the beginning, God... Seriously, there was nothing, and God spoke the world into existence. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 is not concerned with how God did that, or why God did that, or how long it took God to do that. The point is that God created all things. He created human beings, male and female, in His image, He created them. In His image, He created us, the men and the women. And you know what that means? He created us to reflect His good character, His love, His presence on the earth to each other, to animals, to everything. To reflect that, to be His representatives here on earth. He placed the first people in the Garden of Eden and charged them with the role of ruling over all things to be caretakers, to be sub-creators, to be creative. It's awesome. And when tempted by the serpent, our first ancestors were deceived into thinking that maybe, just maybe, God didn't have their best interests in mind. And maybe they knew how to be happy without Him. Maybe they knew how life worked better than God did. And they questioned God's good intention toward them. And they disobeyed Him. And they were expelled from the garden. Now, it could have been a death sentence. But God graciously clothed them and protected them 
and prove that he is a God of love and mercy. This first couple, Adam and Eve, had sons and, and children, and two sons in particular, Cain and Abel. These brothers went out and made sacrifices to the living God. Cain's sacrifice, the older brother, was rejected, while Abel, the younger brother, had his sacrifice accepted. He was giving with all of his heart. And Cain killed Abel out of jealousy. He was expelled from the land. Do you know which direction he moved? He moved east. In Genesis, and I'll be bringing this up throughout the weeks, in Genesis, east means foreshadow of bad stuff going to happen. So when you move east, that's not good. So Cain goes east. And his seed, another very important word that I'll be bringing up over and over again, his seed or his offspring spread out. And they became corrupt and powerful. And they strived to make a name for themselves. Now, back home, Adam and Eve conceived again and they had another son. His name is Seth. Seth means but. Seriously. Foundation. Strength of the thighs. And Seth had another son named Enosh, which even means like it sounds Enosh, like a light wind. It means weakness. That's the connotation. And from Enosh, from this seed line of Seth, the, the foundation, and Enosh, the weakness, comes characters like Noah and Abram and eventually Jesus the Christ. It's from this seed line based on a foundation of weakness, that God's plan to redeem the world will come true. Do you have the goosebumps like I do? I mean, that is, that'll preach. In fact, I did last year, so look it up. Oh. Millennia go by, and the world becomes more and more corrupt. The scriptures even say that people did evil all the time. Everyone except Noah. So God decides to start over, to wipe out every living thing except Noah and his family and two of every kind of animal. He starts afresh. The scene reads like a new creation. And Noah has these three kids, three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Noah gets to work. God makes a covenant with him, says multiply. Uh, and so Noah gets a vocation, a good vocation. He's a winemaker. He's a vinter. And he drinks too much of his product one night, and he gets drunk. And then Ham, this one son, well, he does bad things to his dad. In the scriptures, when you read it, he says he uncovered his dad. That's really a euphemism, a code word for he did weird sex stuff and really shamed his dad. And so Ham gets cursed. And his seed later becomes nations that are a thorn in Israel's side in the rest of the Bible, like Canaan and Babylon and the Philistines. He even has this one seed kid named Nimrod. I'm serious, that's his name. A mighty warrior before the Lord. So these kids, they build a tower in Babylon to reach God. They try to make a name for themselves. They try to be great. And so God says, you know what, they're just going to destroy themselves if they keep this up, if they keep trying to live life without me. So he confuses their language. But Shem, one of Noah's sons, seed bearer of Enosh and Seth, Shem has children who have children who have children and on it goes. And one of those children is named Terah. Would you stand with me as we read Genesis 11, 27 through 12, 6. 
Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And all, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land. Father, we thank you for preserving this ancient, ancient word and for breathing life into it through your Holy Spirit. I thank you that this is more than a history lesson or, or folklore or myth. Lord, this is your word. This is you interacting with people in history. We thank you for this window into your character, into your goodness, and into a brother in the faith and a sister in the faith, in Abram and Sarai. We surrender to your text this evening and ask that you would speak to us and reveal yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So for the first 11 chapters, I don't know if my summary cleared it up very well. Minus the part about God creating us in His image and some noble character qualities from guys like Noah and Enoch, which I didn't mention. Um, We've seen that pretty much it's, it's 11 chapters of people rebelling against God. So if we conclude anything from Genesis 1 through 11, here are three things. God is great. People are really messed up. And God is very, very gracious toward them. At the end of Genesis 11 and the beginning of 12, we are introduced to Abram and his family. But make no mistake, even though the next 10 chapters are about Abram and his family, this is all about God. Yahweh, the main character, is God. Once again, God initiates contact. He initiates relationship with his people. Our God is relational. 
He chooses to enter the fray and work through people. Now, if you've been around church a little while, you've probably heard the word incarnation. Uh, incarnate, which means in the meat, in the flesh. Jesus became incarnate. Jesus is God with skin on. All right, That's kind of a, a big word in Christianity. Uh, I was thinking about how to explain how he works through people, and I thought of the term via carne. I don't, is that, does that work for you? Via, through, he works through flesh as well. He works through people. And let's take a look at the type of people that this God uses. Now, you would expect if God was going to save the world, He might choose a person or a family who at least worshipped Him and who maybe had lots of kids or the ability to have kids to carry out this, this mission. Maybe he would use a powerful family who had lots of influence and resources to, to tell other people about him, right? Well, here's the reality of Abram's family. They're from Ur of the Chaldeans, which sounds like the majority of Stallone's lines in a Rocky movie. Ur. Actually, Ur was quite an ancient city. In fact, by the time Abram was born, Ur was already um, considered one of the major forces in political, cultural, and religious power and world. Specifically, it was one of the centers of worship for the moon god Sin. Now, Ur of the Chaldeans is much later in history become the seat of Babylon as well. So, if you're a... Uh, reading this when it was first written and you're an Israelite who is maybe in captivity in Babylon, it's kind of a smack in the face because you're realizing that the father of your nation and the one that God chose to work from is actually originally from this land that would later become Babylon, your captor. Your captor. And not only that, but it's also the center of this worship of another god, Sin, the moon god. Uh, but of course there's more to the story than that. Abraham is married, or Abram's married to this lady named Sarai, which in Hebrew means princess, but in Akkadian, the, the language of Ur, the, it would have been Sharatu, which means queen. That's not as important as this though. Sharatu was the female consort of the moon god Sin. So the implication then is that this family that Abram's a part of isn't just like from this other place, Ur. But they are like in the center of this moon god worship. And he even marries a woman who's named after the moon god's consort. Now, not only was Abram's family steeped in the worship of, of false gods, he also married a barren woman. In, in his culture, that meant that he would have no offspring to carry on his name. Nor would he and Sarai have children to care for them in their old age. In those days, your children were kind of like your retirement plan. So you would amass... Uh, as much cattle and property as you could, and then you'd have lots of kids, hope some of them would live long enough to take care of you when you got old. The narrator is setting the scene for us here. Abraham's family is not blessed. They worship a god other than Yahweh. Their brother Haran died prematurely. Their father, Torah, died in a land away from home. Abram's wife cannot have children. Abram's situation, as Walter Brueggemann so succinctly and powerfully sums it up, could be considered hopeless. Hopeless. And in reality, in reality, that sums up the fate of the human race unless God 
intervenes. Enter chapter 12, and with it, God's intervention into this hopeless situation. Enter the gospel, or the good news that God saves. Even even people like this, and maybe even especially those who can't save themselves. What does that sound familiar? The poor in spirit, right? God initiates contact with Abram. God always initiates. He's the one who reaches out to us when we're too blind and too stubborn and unable to reach out to Him. He takes this man from a seemingly hopeless life, hopeless situation, and declares blessing and promise. Now first, God calls Abram to leave his country, to leave his relatives, his father's house. And it's kind of difficult for us to grasp how powerful a call that was. You know, our world is relatively small. Uh, With a passport and a little bit of cash, I can get anywhere in the world within a day or two. It's just that easy. In most, most countries in the world will let us move there even though we don't speak the language. And if you have enough money or whatever, you can probably buy land there. There are exceptions to that, of course. But in Abram's day, your city was like your country. It was your tribe. It was your culture, your source of identity, your source of protection. If you traveled to a foreign land, chances are you'd never be able to buy property there. And another thing, by leaving his father's house, that's a big deal because in Abram's day, your family name and your family lineage was your identity. So if you leave that behind... And you go to a foreign land and people want to know what your your heritage is and you can't even claim this name. You're going to be suspect to everyone else. So God calls Abram and Sarai to leave this land, this name. But in return, God promises Abram that he would become a great nation. Literally, that Abram would produce offspring that would multiply into a nation of great population and have a great reputation. He was offering to make Abram have an incredible legacy. God sees Abram and Sarai's barrenness and hopeless situation and he meets their deepest need with extravagance. With extravagance. God promised to bless Abram, to make his name great. And as we've seen, um, when God comes to Abram, he's anything but blessed. His name is anything but great. In fact, back in chapter 11, those people building the Tower of Babel, the whole problem with that situation was they're trying to, to live a life without God. They're trying to make a name for themselves, a legacy for themselves, to make themselves a great nation and make themselves have a great name. And there's one other thing about that story, is that they wanted to be in one place and not have to move around. So God shatters that. He says, no, I want you to move away from your context, but guess what? I'm going to give you all the things that your ancestors or those other people were trying to give for themselves. What does that sound like? That's grace. Abram is going to be blessed and to have a great name, which means lots of influence. Which means his, his name is like his credit report, it's his character. He, he will be greatly respected and have a voice to speak into others' lives. 
And all of this, God says, is so that he will be a blessing. You know, sometimes in our translations it reads like, uh, we say, blessed so that you can be a blessing. But in Hebrew it's an imperative sense, which means it's a command. I'm going to bless you. You are going to be a blessing. See how that works? I'm blessing you. You are going to be a blessing. You can see... God's plan unfolding. Our God is a missionary God. He's on a mission to redeem and recreate the world, to bless the world, to bring life and hope where there's darkness and despair. God also promises to bless all the people who bless Abraham in his mission. God is a God who, I know this is hard to believe, He's so generous. All of this is gift. He wants to lavish us with blessing, right? He says, I will bless those who bless you. And then, watch on the curse side. So that's in the plural. On the curse side, it's in the singular. The one who curses you, basically, literally, that one I will curse. So he wants to bless everybody, and if he has to, he'll curse the ones that get in Abraham's way or impede his mission to the world. And finally, this is so important. God promises to bless all the nations of the world, all different kinds of people through him and his offspring, his seed. Here, again, we see God's missionary heart, his desire to bless all people, not just Jewish people, not just Christian people, not just Muslim people, all the people that come out of Abraham, not just American people. He, he wants to, to bless, to make his name known to all people. And it begs the question, what are, these, what are the implications for us? First, God is in the habit of using the inexperienced and the weak and the unqualified and the ordinary to do extraordinary God-type stuff. Who would have thought that a guy like Abram would be a candidate to father the people that would one day produce Christ, like be the seed of Christ's parent. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, here's this moon-worshipping, married to a moon-worshipping, barren lady guy with no hope, and God breaks into his life and invites him to be part of God's redemptive story. It really shouldn't surprise us. Right? This, this is exactly the type of God we have. This is the God who worked through Jacob the deceiver, Judah who sold his brother into slavery, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the foreigner, David the adulterer and murderer. Jesus the Christ is tied. His seed line is tied to this motley crew of the most unlikely people. And if God can use them, amen, he can use you and he can use a guy like me. You can say something. That's really cool. Adam, or Abram, Adam didn't either, he didn't have any lineage, but Abram didn't have the best lineage, education, experience, he didn't even have the right religion. He had something. He had some faith. And his faith faltered over and over again. That's going to be the rest of the fun stories after this week. But you see, when God calls, when he calls us to, to join in his redemptive story, it isn't about our qualifications, or even, it's not even about our faithfulness. It's about His faithfulness. He will save the world. 
You know, that's that famous psalm that we all like to say, um, be still and know that I am God, and it's comforting to our spirit. You know, but you know what comes after that? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Right? It, it, it's be still because the outcome of the world doesn't rest on your shoulders, and that's gospel. He's going to do this. The question is, are we going to join in? Are we going to join in? The second part is, Abram was promised blessing so that he and his descendants could be a blessing to other people. The New Testament writers see God's promise to Abraham as being culminated in Jesus the Christ. That is, the way that God ultimately wants to bless the world through Abram is through his seed that leads to Jesus. Jesus invites the whole world, all who believe in him, into this redemptive story. So now we as the church are called to be a blessing. That means, of course, locally and internationally. It means in Greenland and it means at Parkview Elementary School. What does it mean for us? It means we are part of this same story that God has initiated way back in Genesis. We're to be active players in God's redemptive plan. Like this silly school supply thing. I mean, it seems like so small. That's part of God's redemptive plan. I mean, you, you, you don't, you don't, we don't think, we who have stuff, we don't think how a pair of shoes or a kind of stylish sweatshirt for some kid that doesn't fit in. And because they don't fit in, they don't have any friends. And because they're always worried that they don't have any friends, they can't pay attention. Because they pay, can't pay attention, they don't learn to read and write. But they fake it all their life. And they get through high school, and then it repeats the cycle. And so you just don't even know how we pray, how we, if we pray over these clothings. And how some kid then has a chance to fit in, and then has a chance to learn, and has a chance to break a cycle. That's kingdom work. And it can be as simple as that. It can be as simple as extending hospitality to someone who looks a little lonely. The good news about this outcome of Jesus coming from Abram's seed is that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father. That means that despite all appearances, Jesus is king. And I know like every few weeks you hear me say the same line. That's because we forget. Even though it seems like world leaders are in control, the corrupt are in control, the slave traders are in control, that military might decides the fate of nations, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. In the face of 9-11... Jesus commands our destiny. The blessing we receive is that truth that Jesus is in control. And the faith, the faith to live in that reality. That reality that Jesus commands our destiny and that through faith in Him we have this life eternal, that's what frees us up to do extraordinary things, to make extraordinary sacrifices. Our bodies, the environment, political structures, social structures will all be remade and renewed in Christ. 
What fear do we really have? (laughs) You know, that, that is reason to hope. In Ephesians, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened. That you would know. And the first thing he says, that which is the hope of your calling. And what are the riches of his glory in the inheritance of his saints? And what is the power toward us in him? It's awesome. Leads me to the third observation. There is not one person in the world who is outside the reach of God's redeeming, recreative love and power. If God can work through a guy like Abram, can you think what a guy like Abram would be like? Moon-worshipping guy, like hopeless, messed up family from Ur. Yeah, if he was walking down the street, you probably would be scared of him or wouldn't pay much attention. I mean, if God can use that guy to father the seed line of salvation, he can certainly work in our lives. And I'm guessing you're here because he has worked in your life to some degree. And that means there's nobody he can't reach. Right? There's nobody outside God's reach. And I know that by experience. I was pretty unreachable. In fact, maybe you want to think of somebody. Somebody in your life that maybe you've given up on. We usually give up on those closest to us. Somebody in our family. Some friend we had from back in college. God would never reach that person. The co-worker who annoys the heck out of you and always talking about their relational exploits on Monday morning from the weekend. God would never reach that person, right? Now, we're wrong when we think that way. We're wrong when we think that way. He, he can do it. I encourage us to lift people up in prayer. Finally, the story we're a part of, this God story, it's a story of faith. God called Abram to leave the comfort and safety of Ur and Haran to go where? Who knows where? The land I will show you. There's nothing, nothing secure about that. Literally, uh, trust me and go to the unknown. God's promises, His call on our life is not meant to bring a life of static ease and comfort all the time. Like, yeah, I mean, it's great to be free from shame and guilt and that does bring a great feeling and but, but this call of life, uh, uh, following Christ is not meant so that we feel good all the time. Or to be secure, at least as the world defines secure. The life of God calls us into a life of adventure. It, it could be, you could live in one place your whole life and still be following God and live a life of adventure and testing. Or you could go all around the world and meet God there. But this life that God gives us, while it might be lacking in the world's definition of, of comfort and security, is a life full of hope and significance. So if we've learned anything from God and his relationship with Abram is that he uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. I just want to close with the question, do you hear him calling? 
Do you hear him calling? Maybe it's a calling of encouragement, of emboldening, to continuing on in the path that he's laid before you. Maybe it's a, a, do you hear him calling, waking you up out of kind of complacency? You know what? I haven't even thought about how I'm using my life, how God is in control of my life. Maybe that's the calling. Maybe you're here and you've not even said, I want to follow God yet. Maybe do you hear Jesus saying, hey, I I want you in my family. I want to rescue you and forgive you and embrace you. I don't know how he's calling, but let's let him do that in prayer.